From Evoke Media, I'm Sabrina Mirage Naim. With me is Cassia Binkowski, and this is Breaking Glass, a series of conversations with women around the world who are shattering glass ceilings and challenging social norms. They are audacious, gutsy, and their stories are echoed across borders and generations in a rallying cry that is changing the narrative for women everywhere. Today, we're talking with Matthew Nuriel, aka the Empress Mizrahi, about gender fluidity, gender dysphoria, gender non-binary, and all the ways we need to retrain our brains to deconstruct labels that we are so familiar with. Sabrina, Matthew grew up in London, England, now lives in Los Angeles, California, and has spent their entire life living with tensions between these cultures, tensions between being a queer child in an Orthodox Jewish school, between the gender non-binary adult experience and the Iranian Jewish community that they're still a part of. Um, we're reflecting on the impact of all of this and, and how it's shaped them into who they are today. And Matthew also talks to us a lot about the drag that they have become so comfortable with as the Empress Mizrahi and not just as in a separate identity, but really as one and the same person. And Matthew reflects with us about how we need to be more comfortable with our own personal evolutions in different stages of our lives, to not get so married to one phase, to one stage, and that it's healthy and beautiful to evolve into what we feel we, we need to grow into. Yeah, and I think they challenge us to reflect on the labels and the boxes that we so instinctively put on people, that we so instinctively put on our children, um, when really our only responsibility as parents is to fully love and accept our children unconditionally for exactly who they are. I think above all else, Matthew challenges us to to reflect on that and to rise to that challenge. It was a it was an eye-opening conversation for sure. This was a really educational conversation for us. It was personal, it was deep, it was vulnerable, and we really appreciated how Matthew opened up their past and history and thought process. So take a listen. Hi, Matthew. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Sabrina and Cassia. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. We have some friends in common and we both live in the kind of the same stomping grounds of, of the L.A. area, um, although that's not where I am right now. But you are. And uh, and it's good to have some mutual friends. So I'm excited to kind of dive into your story. Um, and what we'd like to do is start at the very beginning. <laughs> oh, keep going. Um, keep going. <laughs> no, I'll spare you. Um, so, so you were born into the, an Iranian Jewish family in England, although your accent does not suggest such, I have to say, um, tell us what, what was your family life like? What, what did your parents do? What was it like living in England, um, in your kind of earlier years? So it was, um, very interesting. So I don't have the accent because I left when I was 14 years old and came to Los Angeles. So um, my experience growing up Jewish and Iranian and queer as a little queer kid in the UK was a quite challenging one because uh, my parents literally just moved there from Iran right maybe six months before I was born. And um, so they were pretty, you know, they were very Iranian. And um, their idea of, of 
you know, maintaining my Jewish identity was to put me into an Orthodox Ashkenazi um, Jewish school. So needless to say, I stuck out like a sore thumb. I was one of maybe five brown kids. Um, yeah, so I just want to clarify, though, for the people who are listening, mm-hmm. because there's so much already to unpack there, which is that you went to an Orthodox Ashkenazi school. You were not Orthodox in your upbringing. You are also not Ashkenazi, even though you are Jewish. It was, you know, putting you into a whole other community of, of individuals who, in many other ways, you maybe didn't relate to as closely and queer. Correct. Very well stated. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. That, that, it's like a perfect the, environment for any child to thrive. Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> and then add to that the fact that I was very queer. And, you know, when you're a little kid, you don't even know what that is. You don't, you know, you just know that you're being yourself and people don't like it. Um, so my parents didn't really know how to handle that. So there was already like from jump, there was like a lot of things that really sort of set me apart from everybody in my environment. Um, so it was difficult. Um, you know, I was put in therapy from the time I was six years old, three times a week until I was 11 years old. Um, so all of these kinds of things were very challenging. What triggered that? If you don't mind my asking, what was your parents impetus for that? My mom had discovered therapy and it sort of became her religion and, um, uh, you know, no shade to her. I mean, this was her thinking. She, she thought that this, that that was the answer to everything. So when I was coming home from school being bullied or from being bullied from the neighborhood kids or getting beat up or, you know, crying and not understanding why I couldn't play with a Barbie doll or whatever, like the answer to that was, well, we need to put him in therapy. Because you also have to understand, like, in the Iranian mindset in the 80s, like, if your kid is gay or if somebody's queer, that's a mental problem. Like, that's not normal. So I want to paint that picture a little bit more because what you what you said about how your parents had come to the UK just a few months before you were born that in itself was a huge shift in your family because they are immigrants in a new country, um, a a Western civilization that maybe they hadn't had so much exposure to. I'm making some assumptions, but this is kind of the Iranian Jewish story that a lot of us have experienced in our families. Um, Maybe had to flee during uh, unrest, you know, uproot their entire lives, come to a country that they didn't understand as so well, that they maybe didn't speak the language language so well. And then um, and then this kind of deep seated fear that something is wrong with your son, God forbid. And to put you in therapy at a young age with the intention and the hope that, okay, now things are going to go in the better direction, but really what the end result of that was for you was much more damaging than if they had just kind of left you alone and like let you be who you were. Yeah, and beyond just leaving me alone, um, listen, therapy is great, but it's not an, it's never, nothing can replace basic love of a parent to their child, right? I would have been fine with being bullied. I would have been fine with being, you know, I I remember being punched in the face when I was like 11 years old and being called a poof and all of this stuff. Like, it was traumatizing, but I think I would have been okay had my parents, when I went home crying, would have just hugged me and told me, I love you. There's nothing wrong with you. You're good. We love you. You're going to face these challenges, but it's going to be okay. I never got that. So that was... um, 
that was a, a, a problem. And I'm not blaming them for anything. They didn't know any better. They genuinely didn't know. Like, they were dumbfounded. Well, we talk about that a lot. I mean, we talk about, you know, how how influential, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse, parents can be, but how it's, you know, almost always well-intended, right? Nobody, everybody wants the best for their child and everybody's doing the best that they can with what they've got and what they know. Yeah. Yeah, but we also talk about how sometimes the the best intentions of the parents can be the most damaging results for their kids um, and and how challenging that is. And, And also, I have to say, Matthew, something that we've spoken about with other things is um, how sometimes not knowing better isn't enough of an excuse, right? It's tough to kind of, um, it's tough to, to sit with that, but in some cases that's just true. I I would say in every case that that's true because for me, when I say they didn't know any better, I'm kind of making excuses for them because I, I love my, you know, my mom's passed away since and my dad is an amazing man. He lives in London still and he's leaps and bounds from what he was when I was a little kid. Like he completely accepts me. Um, but the truth of the matter is when I see friends who now have little children who are, you know, three, four, five, six years old, and I see how they interact with them, I, I can't kind of really understand being any other way with your infant child other than purely loving them. It's beautiful, and and also I know that for parent for a lot of parents it's really difficult because we were raised with this social social construct that boys act this way and girls act that way and we dress this way and we play with these kinds of toys and whatever. And when your child is not does not fit into that exact social construct, for you to deconstruct that very damaging mental frame of mind that so many of us have been drilled into for for our entire lives is not easy. And yet it is, I believe, very much um, our responsibility as parents to do that work for ourselves so that our kind of negative, you know, the negative social constructs that have been drilled in us do not get passed on to our children. So that that feeling of I do not love or something's wrong with you or whatever would never pass on to our children. Well, and this is, I mean, it's something that we've talked about. I mean, this idea of the the gender boxes that we put our place on our children in, either as parents or as society. Um, and, and Matthew, you've said before that as a child, you were often attracted to and interested in things that society traditionally associated um, with women or girls. You know, you just mentioned playing with Barbies. What are some of the other examples? When did that sort of gender construct start to rear its head for you? It's so interesting. Um, the, the gender, I didn't, I mean, listen, when you're a little kid, a toddler, you don't know anything of gender constructs. You just know what you like and what you don't like. I straight up thought I was a girl. Like I, physical traits or not. Like, I just thought I was a girl. I related to girls. I I liked girl things. I remember throwing the biggest tantrum in a department store because I wanted a Barbie doll and my parents wouldn't buy me one. And eventually they did. But then a couple of years later, they took them away. Um, I liked to play in dress up in girls clothes. I wanted to be like the Disney princess. Um, I was obsessed with Miss Piggy and Madonna because those were like the people or entities that I deemed feminine. And that's what I I was attracted to. Um, So, yeah, it was it was stuff like that. And of course, and as I started to 
get a little bit older, I started to get crushes. I remember having a crush on my neighbor's older brothers when I was like eight years old. Um, so it was stuff like that. And then after so many years of being um, bullied at school and mocked, um, you start to kind of hide yourself and lose yourself in inside these constructs that are created for us. And I do also want to name that I think that while these constructs are there, that I think being Iranian, um, there's an added sort of thing to it, which is that, are, I'm, Sabrina, are you Iranian? Yes. So, you know, the concept of Averu, which is kind of like this mixture of like family reputation, your reputation, community reputation, and it's very much intertwined with shame. Yeah. This idea that, that people will put how, how they are perceived outwardly so far in front of everything else, that it's the highest priority that you will bankrupt yourself to be perceived as wealthy, as, you know, a perfect family, as a perfect individual, that kind of thing. Yeah. So I think there was definitely very much an element of that, especially once I was, you know, 14 and I moved to the U.S. with my mom to Los Angeles. I mean, that's that was a whole other culture shock that happened. Um, but I digress. I think that there's definitely this added pressure of this Aberu, this notion that is so steeped into Iranian culture. Um, and I think even more so in Jewish Iranian culture, because you know, up until, you know, it's only the last, you know, prior to the revolution from like the 1920s that Iranian Jews were even considered maybe respectable. Prior to that, we're talking about intergenerational trauma of being treated like you're nothing. So I want to do I want to talk about the gender for a second and, and non-binary and for you non-binary means that your pronouns are they and them and this is something that as we're saying has become more prevalent in society we are more um, aware of kind of looking beyond the binary labels that we have constructed uh, that are kind of arbitrary right she her um, him whatever he him so what for you growing up not having that language not having something that was more kind of societally understood when did first of all when did you decide that these pronouns felt right for you and what did it feel like growing up without those pronouns i, I i'm learning so much now at an older age than i ever did before it's so strange you know I, I discovered what gayness was and i came out as gay when i was like 15 and i just ran with it um and even then i was like dabbling in drag and stuff and then i kind of stopped um and i never thought i would have to think about it again but it's interesting when i think back when i was 15 i thought i was transgender as well and i even told my mom and my mom was more accepting of that than being gay which really speaks to the binary. Well, it's, it's in any, I think Iranian culture, it's just such a strict binary. Like they cannot understand anything other than you're a man or you're a woman. Right. As long as you're a woman attracted to men, that makes more sense to me. Exactly. Exactly. And then that didn't feel right either. So I kind of pulled out of that. And then it's just these more recent years when I started learning about the terminology, non-binary, gender queer, gender fluid, which is so much of it. It's a lot of it's even over my own head, but I feel 
scene. I mean, I think you were starting to answer it, which is that you were seeking different labels that may have fit you growing up. Like you thought maybe you were trans because that was available for you to grasp onto, but that's not what it was, right? Now you feel seen. I guess the question is, um, when, when in your life were you like, yes, that is me? Like within the last year. That's, cr- yeah, that's crazy. Is there, so, so this, this notion of like giving words and labels to something that we, that has always existed, but you know, that you have always known about yourself, but you didn't otherwise have the right language for, do you in any way feel boxed in by a new label that has, you know, become available and, and, um, you know, is being normalized or does that feel liberating? It feels a little bit of both. And here's why it feels liberating. There's no question about that. I feel this this language and this understanding makes me as an individual feel seen and so many others the reason it is a little limiting is because it's still a label at the end of the day and when people put this label on you like i understand language is under is important and i understand recognizing who you are is important than that having the correct language can facilitate that but with that said and i'm i can't speak for other people i can only speak for myself i won't I just came out to like my closest friends as being non-binary maybe a couple of months ago in an email. And I told them my pronouns are they, them. I'm not a stickler for pronouns. If you call me he, him, I understand you've known me for so many years. I don't expect that to change. I understand I present as male most of the time. So I understand that. Like I'm not, I'm never going to be that person that's like, you call me that by the wrong pronouns. That's an example. That's again, that's for me, though, a transgender person who's gone, who's, you know, still within the binary, I could understand would be very upset if you're presenting as a woman and somebody keeps intentionally misgendering you. That's an act of aggression. Um, But yeah, those and also in terms of all the terminology that's out there. Listen, I don't always know exactly where I fit into that. Sometimes I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm gender queer. Then I'm like, oh, I'm gender fluid or non-gender. Oh, it's a lot. Like, I'm fine with just being under the umbrella of non-binary. Again, that's my personal thing. I don't expect that to be for everybody. But um, there is this, like, intense need for people to know exactly what it is that you identify as. And just out of sheer rebelliousness sometimes, I'm just like, I don't care. You can refer to me as whatever you want. I'm fine with it. I do think part of the need comes from a desire to be as respectful as possible for this, the fluidity of the, how the language is changing so dramatically. And, and I'll tell you from my perspective that it takes intentionality in my brain for me to say they, them of an, a singular individual, but I will do it until I'm blue in the face if that's how you feel comfortable and identify, right? It just takes practice. It's like a new thing. We're all kind of... Yeah, we're all part of a generation that didn't, that language didn't exist for us, you know? And so it's it's retraining all of our brains to, you know, to verbalize that and, and to normalize that. Let's fast forward. So at 15, you moved from England, from London to Los Angeles with your mother. Is that right? After your parents separated? Yeah, 14. Yeah. Did anything change for you then? I mean, both are huge international cities, but obviously different cultures. What what shifted? A lot shifted because uh, while there were Iranian Jews in 
the UK. So my dad's family were there. Um, it was coming to LA. It's like on another level. Like Los Angeles is, I believe, it's the largest community of Iranians outside of Iran and the largest community of Jewish Iranians outside of uh, probably Israel, I believe. So it's it's a very insular community because of the sheer number. You're able to facilitate that insularness. You know, you don't have to go outside of your community for anything because there's so many of us. So there's a culture to that that I was not used to and that I was very angry at. I, I didn't understand it. I didn't want to be part of it. I didn't, I couldn't, that, that Aberu, I mean, it was like, times a hundred, like it was just next level when I came here. All of a sudden, everybody's in the Mercedes and everybody has to have, you know, it's like totally keeping up with the Joneses. And I wanted to pierce my face and dye my hair pink and shave off my eyebrows. Like I just didn't fit into it at all. So that was a culture shock for me um, as a teenager and also caused for a lot more anger because I'm like, well, I don't, as an adult now, I have the words to say, I don't understand when somebody is a pubescent and a teenager, they're discovering who they are. Again, I will never understand a parent not allowing that. Like when I hear about a parent not letting their kid dye their hair blue, I'm like, why not? When do you want them to do it? When they're 25? Like, let them do it now. It's the time for them to do it, you know? And by the way, if you want to do it when you're 25, do it when you're 25, like whatever. Um, but that, that created a lot of animosity to me for me. And it wasn't just because my mom's strict or my mom's not letting me do what I want to do because I did it anyway. But it was everything that came with it. It was this need to put the community and the family's reputation and what, what, what the community thinks of us and our family, that need was put above or beyond my personal needs. Um, so that was uh, very problematic for me. And I'm sure that was even intensified coming from a different place. But can you tell us your coming out story? Sure. So <laughs> I've always, I, I <clears throat> okay, well, part of, the, part of the culture shock also that was a positive element of moving here was for the first time I was in public school and I was in a non-Jewish school, in a secular school. So I was surrounded by a much larger um, pool of diversity than I was in private Jewish schools in London. So um, I started to make friends. Um, I would say for the first time in my life, I think I really started to make like real friends, like a group of friends. And of course, there were the, the artists and the punk rockers and the you know, Heshers, and I don't remember all the crazy terminology, but they were the, quote, bad kids or the wild kids or whatever. And I found acceptance with the artists and the punk rockers and um, specifically with women, female. We were teenagers, but female artists and punk rockers were the ones who accepted me. So once I had even the, that slight acceptance from like three people, I felt very empowered and emboldened. And I remember at 15, I started going with some of my girlfriends to an all-ages gay club that was happening every Friday night um, in Hollywood. And um, I would go after Shabbat dinner, a group of us would go. And I remember one day my mom saying, why are you going to this place? And I was kind of like, yeah, I was very rebellious and provocative as well. And I would just, I remember just saying, well, it's, they have drag shows and it's a gay bar and um, 
she just didn't understand, or I'm sure deep down she really did understand, and that's probably what scared her. Um, so one day on the way to Shabbat dinner, she asked me again why I'm going to that place, and I said, and keep in mind, up until this point, I'd come out to my friends as bisexual. I never came out as gay, and my mother was the first person I said the words, I'm gay, to, because I didn't want her to think there was any um, any kind of wiggle room. <laughs> So um, we're on our way to Shabbat dinner, and I told her, and I said, that's why I'm going. And it was, uh, I was naive because I underestimated, you know, I thought, well, when my parents divorced and we were still in London, she went to hair school. She loved her gay hair, hair uh, instructor or whatever. And she would talk about him, and she thought he was really funny. So I thought, oh, she's going to be okay with it. But she wasn't okay. It was a lot of, like, Oh my God, so much screaming and crying and threats and I'm sending you to kibbutz, I'm sending you to the IDF, I'm sending, you know, we're going to the best doctors, we're going to the best psychiatrists. And um, I didn't go to a kibbutz or to the IDF, but I did go to psychiatrists and therapists and doctors. Um, and again, I didn't need any of it. Like none of it was necessary in any way but it was this idea that we can change him or you can I don't know medically intervene with somebody's queerness and you just can't when did when were you free of that of that influence and that um those constraints I mean was it was it so long as you were living in her house was it so long as you know she was alive and you felt a pressure to you know fulfill her expectations in some regard as her son what when did that shift for you you know this is this is really hard to say and really kind of harsh to say but the truth of the matter is yes i mean that that major level of like the doctors and so on and so forth did die down um but it it never i never had the opportunity to fully delve into who i am and explore my gender identity and my queerness and and find self-acceptance until my mother passed away. And that sucks and that's harsh. And again, it's not that I don't think, I, I don't, you know, I don't think that she didn't love me. I just think that she thought she was doing what was best. So this is this is where I want to switch the conversation. We're going to introduce a new character. Take us back to the moment you first experienced drag culture, and then when did you make that leap from being a participant to actually joining the community? Yeah, from seeing to participating. So sorry if any of this is long-winded. It's just there are no short answers to any of these. That means we're asking the right questions. That's good. <laughs> Um, so when I started going to that club, it was a club called Arena in Hollywood when I was 15. And this is like the mid-90s, and they had a drag show every Friday, and I was 15, and I started doing it then. And I only did it for about a year because it drove my mother and her family over the edge. And when I say over the edge, I mean it was like sheer panic because bad enough that he's gay, but now he's dressing like a girl and going out to these places and it was just it was terrible um and i was sat down and this is veering off a little bit but it's important to say i was sat down by like the head honcho of the family um and told 
explicitly told that if I want to be gay, that that's fine, but I have to do it in private and I have to do it secretly. I can't wear women's clothes. I have to marry women. I have to go to school and become, you know, a doctor, a lawyer, something reputable and have children. And I can do the gay stuff in secret. Um, and that was a bit of a turning point for me because that was like, wow, this is really serious. Like the family is really fucked up over this. Excuse my French. So let me just, you know, if it's going to cause this much, like it was almost more trouble than it was worth. So I was like, I'm just not going to do the drag anymore. I'm not going to do it. I'm, I'm wilding out too much anyway. I'm drinking at 16 years old. Like I'm like having too much fun. Let me put that away and I'll just be myself, but I won't be the drag myself. Like just put an end to that. So then I never really did it again. That was when I was 16 and I didn't do it again until I was in my like 20 years later. Uh, yeah, more than 20 years later. And it happened. Wow. Yeah, it just happened organically by mistake, I guess. I was in, in the field of stand-up comedy and uh, gay stand-up comedy. And I created um, a video with a friend, with a group of comedian friends that was a spoof on like The Real Housewives and The Shaws of Sunset called The Real Housewives of The Shaws of Sunset. The joke being, how can you have the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills without any Persians? Aren't? True. <laughs> I, I still don't get it. It's like not realistic. Um, but I mean, I put on a wig and I don't think I even shaved and I put on lipstick and I played this absurd character. And um, my friend who I did the, the video spoof with did a weekly show at a gay bar and said, I want to do one night comedy as a drag. Will you bring this character? And I said okay. And I thought to myself, I'm never going to do this again. So I want to do it right. I, that was my conscious thinking. I think my subconscious thinking was probably thinking, this is fabulous. Please do it. So I hired a makeup artist. I bought a, a, a nice wig. Like I put a whole outfit together and I did it. And something happened that night that was a reaction in the whole four or five years that I did stand up comedy. I never receive that kind of a reaction before the character was hilarious and it was almost like a full circle moment because i got to like play this character that was essentially mocking these iranian women that i grew up with that were so critical of me and like turning into this hilarious person anyway so i did that and then i did it you know we did the same show a few months later i did it again and then we did another web series and throughout all of this it's after about i think this was like 2016 or 2017 when i was like okay let's be real with yourself like this isn't see, i i, I I had to have this conversation with myself where I was basically telling myself, like, you're not doing this for laughs. You're doing this because you enjoy being pretty. And that's when it kind of veered from being an actor or a comedian playing a character into I want to be a drag queen. I was going to ask because you talk about how that the response you got from the audience was, you know, more than crazier than you've ever gotten from anything else. How much of your connection to this character and your desire to be part of this character was because of the audience response and how much of it came from within you? Um, I think the desire to play the character came from audience response and the desire to play the character, but pretty came from within me. So as if you watch there are, 
two sort of seasons of this web series we did called Persianality. The first one, I look, while I'm made up fully, I look like a funny character. The second one, I'm funny, but you can see a marked difference in like how I presented myself. I wanted to be glamorous and beautiful. Um, and, you know, life is evolutionary. I don't think it ever stops. And that's one thing I'm learning throughout this whole process is not to be too married to these sort of labels or boxes that you put yourself in. Because now I'm at this place, literally at this junction in my life where I'm like, am I a drag queen? Because I don't think I'm a drag queen. I think I'm a non-binary individual who likes to present themselves a certain way. I like fashion. I like beauty. I like glamour and um i don't necessarily want to perform i don't want to go do lip syncs i don't there was so much pressure to do drag race and i auditioned like two or three times and now i'm like i don't want to i just don't want to that's not what i'm doing here you know um so yeah i like that but you still want to be pretty you still want the makeup, you still want the glam, you still, like, that's still fulfilling to you, or it still feels like you. Yes, but I'm, I'm at a place where I'm realizing, so this was something that I wanted, at some point earlier in our discussion, I wanted to bring up as well, was, um, if you don't mind me sort of bringing this up, was the idea, the, the concept of gender dysphoria, which is very real, and now that within the last six months that I've been sort of going through this surge of, of self-discovery and growth again, um, I'm able to pinpoint times in my life where gender dysphoria hit really hard and I'm able to recognize um, what it is for me because it's different for everybody. You know, some people who identify as non-binary might not, you know, might want to have top surgery because their breasts trigger gender dysphoria. Um, for me, it's in my face. Like when I look, when somebody tells me, I, my whole life people would tell me I'm handsome, I would, it just, my wiring would tweak out, you know? And I learned throughout the years to just say thank you, but it was never comfortable. And I had to realize and, and, and really look at myself and go, well, why is it when I'm in drag and somebody tells me I'm beautiful, I take that and run with it. Like I'm great, like most genuine heartfelt thank you will come out of me. I, I do think, though, that what you're saying about the evolution of all of us, it's such an important piece of this because you maybe wanted something or you felt comfortable with something earlier on in your life and it has evolved into something else and you shouldn't feel like you have to kind of, you're not stamping it in concrete forever. And, and I think that's a really good reminder for all of us, especially in a conversation like this where there are topics of labels and this and that where we feel like our brains are hardwired to kind of put certain categories or labels or boxes around things that those also evolve those are fluid all of that this whole category of the conversation cannot even for the purposes of this podcast which will be recorded and kept forever maybe in 20 years someone's listening to this and being like that is some old-fashioned bullshit Maybe, right? Very possible. Anything is possible. In fact, it's very likely, right? Very likely. So, so tell us when the Empress Mizrahi was born and became part of you. So I, that was around 2017 when I was like, no, I'm not playing this funny character. I'm, I, I want to feel empowered in, in my drag. At the time, it was drag. And, and 
who I am. And um, I liked the name The Empress just because I've liked the idea of being Persian royalty and it was about empowerment, right? And it was about like, you know, this community that I come from that looks down on me. Well, how can I combat that uh, like better like than saying, you know, this whole reputation and all Beru and everything, well, who has higher reputation amongst that and amongst that community than somebody that's royalty? So I became the empress. And then less less than a year ago was when I, I was like, well, I want to add Mizrahi to it because I wanted my name to encompass who I am. I wanted people to know who I am by seeing my name. And I became more and more vocal in my Jewish identity and in 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 sort of advocating for the things that I believe um, are just and right within uh, the world of Judaism. Um, so that's why I added Mizrahi to it. Has that layer of your identity and, and kind of the work that you've done as of recently, sort of unpacking that, has that helped you find your voice or were you always an outspoken activist? Because you certainly now um, are using your platform to engage on a, on a number of social and political issues. Um, and I'm curious how that has unfolded in parallel or as a product of um, your your relationship to, to the drag community and, and your unpacking of, of how that fits into your larger identity. Well, firstly, I want to name that I don't know what my relationship is to the drag community. I don't know if I necessarily have one. I have some friends who are drag queens, but I mean, I'm not really plugged into the drag scene and I had a resistance to it. And I think now I understand why. Um, I think that I was always an outspoken person. Again, my idol growing up in, in the 80s and 90s was Madonna, who was very outspoken and who definitely pushed every envelope known to society and still does. And I think that that influenced me a lot. Um, but I also think that through being lost and through feeling rejected and through all of those years of sort of running from myself and then having to rediscover myself, I think it took a turn of being rebellious, more like I was a rebel without a cause. Whereas now I don't, maybe it's rebellious, but I feel like I have something to say and I have a point to make and that there's people that are affected by, by things that I care about and that I believe in. And I feel like it's my responsibility to talk about. And I also feel like, being queer and being a gender non-binary, gender non-conformist, drag queen, whatever you want to call it, and being Jewish and being a Zionist is, these are supposed to be juxtaposing ideals, right? So I feel like it's my re responsibility to sort of be open about them and talking about it. One thing I really respect about your social media presence, so for people who are interested in finding Matthew on Instagram, um, it's at the Empress Mizrahi. And one of the things that I found really compelling is not just that you're an activist, but you're an activist that shares a ton of information and historical context to bring your point home versus I'm going to yell and scream and be angry and you better you know, accept my opinion. Whereas in this case, you are sharing a lot more of the backstory of certain issues um, from, I think, from a, a much more informational and educated perspective. Uh, and I'm curious, it, again, to kind of going back to Cassia's question, how much of that, how much of your activism is folded into the Empress? 
Um, well, thank you, first of all. Um, and how much of the activism is folded into the Empress? I mean, all of it is folded into the Empress, I think. I mean, I, the Empress and Mizrahi and Matthew Nouriel, I'm one and the same. And it's interesting because I, I, it's taken this, like, two personas are now unifying into one. Um, and so everything that's coming from my perspective and from my knowledge and from the things that I've learned, and I am the Empress Mizrahi, so it's all, there's no sort of separation with, my activism or my advocacy and who I am. So this is really, this is something that I kind of want to double down um, because I think it's important. For people who are outside of this picture, we see Matthew and we see the Empress Mizrahi. Mm -hmm. These two individuals dress differently. They maybe act differently. Maybe they even speak differently. I'm not sure. But for, for the outsiders, we see two people, right? But what you're saying is, these two people not only coexist within you, they are the same person, right, inside of you. And they are one and the same. And I think what I want to understand more for, for our audiences is when, when do you feel like now's the time that I'm going to like put on my makeup and put on a sexy dress and like take pictures for Instagram. And now's the time that I'm Matthew and I don't have any of that stuff. And is there a moment that like y you switch it on off or it's, I kind of, what I'm trying to get at is like these characters are, are kind of living in you together. They are one and the same but they look different and they talk different and they act differently. So how is it coexisting inside of your body? So they used to talk differently. They used to act differently. Now they just look different. And one is very glamorous and very made up and very, you know, sexy. And one is just this guy with the scruff that you're sitting, seeing sitting in front of you right now. That um, this is a very recent revelation for me, which is this idea of merging these two people because it's interesting the first time i did that first show my friend who put on the show said to me his name's teddy he's a great comedian teddy margus and he said to me oh my god i feel like you're more you when you're playing this character and i was like no you're crazy i'm just playing a character you know um but it's true i mean it's i feel more comfortable when i'm in for lack of a better term in drag than not in drag and i think that that's that has caused a lot of self-reflection over the last year or so for me to try and understand why, because getting in drag is exhausting. It's literally a four hour process. You know, it, it's an exhausting thing. And I, and I had to ask myself like, well, why do you need to do all of this just to feel comfortable? And I thought it for a long time, I had some kind of, um, uh, I don't know, complex or, 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 body dysmorphia or something and i'm realizing that i don't that what i what i had was gender dysphoria and the, and the general unease and discomfort with who I, what i look like and who i feel like i am so my newest sort of direction that i'm heading in and that i'm taking steps towards is how to unify these two people without having to take four hours to get myself into a state to look how i want to look and for me being a drag is not a performance for me being in a drag for me being in drag is an is an opportunity to express my gender and feel comfortable within it matthew what would you wish for another child navigating 
this tension between their own gender identity and the social expectations and the, and the boxes that we put around them. What do you wish you would have heard, you know, 20, 30 years ago? What do I wish I would have heard myself? Uh, there's nothing wrong with you. I love you. You're brilliant. You're smart. You're intelligent. You're beautiful. You can be anything that you want to be. There are no limits. Breaking Glass is a production of Evoke Media. Evoke is a nonprofit organization that exists in order to elevate the people and stories that are working to make the world a more unified and equitable place. Learn more at weareevokemedia.com.